So when we say that Moses is the author of Genesis and the author of the Pentateuch as a whole, are we saying that he wrote every last line, every sentence and every word and syllable and letter? No, we're not saying that. It is perfectly acceptable to maintain. The church teaches this. I'm going to take you in just a moment here to the um, magisterial document, the Pontifical Biblical Commission. But it is perfectly acceptable to say that Moses is the primary, substantial, predominant author, however you want to word that, but that he also perhaps used other sources available to him at the time, oral sources or written sources, that he used those in the final composition of the book. All right. It is also perfectly acceptable to say that while he is the predominant author, substantial principal author, that Genesis and the Pentateuch as a whole took like, its final form over this mysterious period of time over the ages, even up to after the exile. So yes, perhaps Ezra absolutely had some role in it as it took its final form. Okay, Not that there are these original sources, JEDP, like we discussed. There's problems with that theory. It doesn't make sense. It's just a theory. There's no proof. There's no internal evidence, external evidence. It's just a hypothesis. Okay, so we looked at all the internal and, internal, internal and external evidence for Mosaic authorship, but we're not saying that he wrote every last little word. So the Pontifical Biblical Commission has this fantastic document. In the early 20th century, in 1906, they had to address, in fact, the title here is On Mosaic Authorship of the Pentateuch, and they had to address all of these other theories that came from the 19th century that were trying to undermine Mosaic authorship and simultaneously trying to undermine their veracity of God's Word. So here it is in 1906, on June 27th, the Pontifical Biblical Commission, known often as the PBC, uh, that office doesn't exist anymore. That's a long um, history lesson right there. But nevertheless, this document, I would say, is authoritative, and they address the authorship of the Pentateuch by Moses by maintaining these points that I just shared with you. So number one, it's all here in your notes. Based on the internal evidence of the text itself, statements of Mosaic authorship in both Testaments, that's the internal evidence that we looked at just a few moments ago from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It maintains internal evidence now, maintains Moses as the author. So based on the internal evidence, as well as the witness of Jewish and Christian tradition, we looked at all of that as well. Jews, as well as Samaritans we threw in there, as well as the Christians, the apostles, and the early church fathers, they maintain that Moses is the author and no one else. In the, inter in the Bible and outside of the Bible, there are no complete competing claims to authorship. Internal, external evidence says it's Moses. Then it goes on to say the Catholic Church maintains Moses as the substantial author of the Pentateuch. Okay, it's not a direct quote, it's just kind of a summary there. Okay, so that's everything that we just went through. So he's the substantial author. There's no one else who claims to be the author. Number two, Moses may have had secretaries to assist him in the composition of the work. That's totally acceptable. Okay, he's got a lot going on leading the people you know, out of slavery into freedom from, from Egypt to the Promised Land. He's got a lot going on. He could have totally used secretaries. Not that he couldn't write it himself, because keep in mind, a lot of people forget this. Moses received the best education in the world during his time. He was raised in Pharaoh's court, all right, receiving the best of the best formation education that they had to offer at the time. He was incredibly well-formed, incredibly well-educated. He could have totally written, um, the, again, the substantial principal work that we now have as, as the Pentateuch, or he could have dictated it to a secretary. In any case, it's perfectly fine to accept that, but don't forget that Moses received the best of the best education in Pharaoh's court. All right, so again, it's possible and probable that Moses used sources, oral or written sources, that were available to him at the time. Now, we don't have these sources anymore, but he had them, and he was able to incorporate them into the work. Now, remember, God is the primary author of Scripture. He guides this whole process. It's God-breathed, 
but Moses is a true author and he is using the sources that he had at the time. That's logical and that's acceptable. And it's also logical and acceptable, like we said, he didn't write every last little word, he probably, or I should say, he probably wrote the substance of it. Then over the course of time, other people added it, added to it, redacted it, um, edited it, expanded it, whatever it might have been, until it took its final form and turned, and at the time of Jesus and the apostles. It's totally acceptable to say that because some people will argue against Mosaic authorship by saying there are verses and lines in the Bible that Moses could not have written. So for example, in Numbers it says, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the planet. Now, if you're the humblest dude on the face of the planet, you're probably not going to point that out. So it's perfectly fine. Like, let's say Joshua or Ezra, whoever it might have been on both sides of that, you know, con continuum there of the chronological time period. Let's just say it was Joshua. Joshua wrote down he was the meekest man on the face of the planet because Moses is dealing with a bunch of knuckleheads, a bunch of hard hearted, you know, wicked, sinful um, Israelites in that first generation. And so the scriptures are going to clarify that he was a leader who was humble and meek. He probably didn't write that. Also, at the end of Deuteronomy, it talks about his death in the past tense. That would be a pretty interesting trick to be able to write about your own death in the past tense. So it's fine that other people wrote these, these are just two examples, wrote these verses, but you don't need to reject Mosaic authorship in its whole just because you have some of these examples. It could easily be explained by other editors or redactors or authors later on in the, in the mysterious course of time, okay? So again, documentary hypothesis, all the problems that we discussed, the origin, uh, in the 19th century, the church and the Pontifical Biblical Commission clarifies that Moses is the substantial author, but they have, we have these other elements in play as well that we just discussed. So hopefully that makes sense. That's enough on Mosaic authorship. Now let's move here to how it's organized and how it's structured because it's beautifully structured and organized. It's not haphazard. Too many people just dive straight into the scriptures but not looking at the big picture because the structure of the book or the epistle or the gospel, whatever it is, is really amazing. It actually demonstrates a great theological truth. So Genesis is beautifully organized. And here in your notes, this is this next section, Roman numeral one. There are two ways to look at the structure of Genesis, how it's organized. And these two ways are theologically interconnected, all right? They're not separate sections. They're theologically interconnected that are, that's trying to communicate an important truth, okay? So the first way that Genesis is structured is according to major time periods, all right? So there are two, two major time periods that Genesis focuses on. Uh, in the first instance, it's Genesis 1 through 11, that's known as primeval history, and it records four major events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, four major events. Now, this is universal in scope, right? It's over a vast unknown amount of time, I would argue, vast unknown amount of time, uh, and it's focusing really on the drama of the human family's origins and fall. Uh, the origin of sin, uh, being scattered and exiled from God. So universal in scope over a vast amount of time, focusing on the drama of the human family. All right, it's the creation of Adam, and then of course the generations that come after him leading up really to the Tower of Babel. So that's Genesis 1 through 11, four major events, universal in scope, the human family. Then Genesis zeroes in and narrows in on the patriarchal history in Genesis 12 through 50, okay? So now there are not four major events, there are four major characters, the patriarchs, and then you can argue the matriarchs alongside them. But these, of course, are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. 
Now this is more particular in scope. It's zeroing in and honing in on one particular family, not the human family, but one family of Abraham. Okay, and the origins of Abraham, his call,、uh, which of course is going to become the family of God, and it's a shortened period of time in the second millennium BC. So you can already see that these two periods, they're very parallel for events. For pa、uh, patriarchs, for characters, universal in scope. Then it narrows down to be particular in scope. One gigantic human family. Now the one family of Abraham that will become the family of God. Okay. Now there are not two sections, right, that are completely unrelated. Like after you get to the Tower of Babel, you're like, okay, wow, that was interesting. Now let's talk about Abraham. No, there's 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 always a flow. There's always a logical, theological, and logical connection here, and that is. That Genesis begins with the creation of the human family in Adam, but Adam, because of Adam's sin, and we'll talk about this in a future lesson, Adam is spiritually Adam and humanity as a whole is spiritually exiled from God's presence. The relationship and the intimacy,、um, the covenant that Adam had with God is now broken thanks to his disobedience and thanks to his pride. So this gets even worse. The human family is scattered abroad after Babel. Sin just gets worse and worse during this, these eleven chapters. So exile. So the creation of the human family in right relationship with God. Then thanks to sin, there is exile and they're scattered. Okay. Then the theological flow is God wants to begin to rebuild the human family and restore the human family in a new creation. That's why it zeroes in on Abraham because he's going to be the father of God's renewed family. So Abraham's call comes right after the Tower of Babel. So they're called Abraham and his faith and and the patriarchs. Are going to be called by God to be an instrument of blessing to all the human family. This is ultimately going to come back to Jesus. Jesus will fulfill all this. But the beginning of the return from spiritual exile, the beginning of the healing from sin, starts with Abraham. So that's where the process begins here. So that's what's going on, focusing on the universal in scope, in sin and exile. But the return from exile. Going back to God, back to the Garden, back to Paradise, that'll ultimately be completed with Jesus, begins with the call of Abraham and his family. That's the flow. So hopefully you're following me, okay? So that's the first way to understand the structure and the organization of Genesis. The next way, which again is very much interconnected, is by means of ten cycles. Okay, in Hebrew there is this word; it's called toledot. It's right here in your notes. Okay,、uh, letter B here. It's the toledot. It's like cycles. Really, it's generations or genealogies, and there are ten of them that organize and structure the entire book of Genesis. All right, so Toledot. By the way, Toledot is what Genesis. The word Genesis. Remember, at the beginning of this lesson, we talked about the titles for the book. Genesis comes from the Greek Genesis,、uh, generations. It's really translating Toledot here. It's not translating in the beginning. All right, I, I told you to pay attention. This is the why it's called Genesis in the、uh, Greek Greek Old Testament. Okay. Well, in any case, there's these ten cycles, ten generations, and genealogies. It's a very very important word. We tend to skip over genealogies, okay? But they're really important, and the fact that there are ten of them is also really important, because in, in the Bible, ten is the number of completion, of perfection, of totality, not seven. Everyone gets this wrong. Not everyone, but it is often、uh, misquoted.、Um, there's misinformation out there. Seven is the number of the covenant.、And、I'll talk a lot about this when we go through Genesis one and Genesis two, in the next couple of lessons. 
Seven is covenant. I mean, the Hebrew word for seven is covenant. It's covenant oath. We'll get there. But ten, think ten plagues, uh, ten commandments. We'll talk about that in our study on, on Exodus. Um, if you want to go to the Salvation History course, we go through all of it as well. But ten is completion and totality and perfection. So this is significant here because you've got ten cycles. And surprise, surprise, there are five of these Toledot in the primeval history, and there are five in the patriarchal history, and they're listed here in your notes. So it's a perfect division here, and that's not an accident. So as you can see here in your notes, uh, the first Toledot, the generations, is in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then you have 5-1. These are the generations, the Toledot of Adam. Then of Noah, then of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then you have Shem, the, the fifth one, the Toledot of Shem, because he's the firstborn of Noah. We'll talk about all that in future lessons. So five in primeval history, and then there are five in patriarchal history. As you can see, uh, 1127, these are the generations, the Toledot of Terah, which is really uh, Abraham's father, and then of Ishmael, Isaac, and Esau, and Jacob. So five in primeval history, five in patriarchal history, 10 is the number of completion, totality, and perfection. So what is the theological message that's trying to be communicated here through the structure and the division of this beautiful book? Well, this structure, through the use of the number 10, symbolically explains, get this, this is really important. This symbolically explains the complete origins of all things by God from the view of life-transmitting genealogies beginning with the human family of Adam, okay, leading up to the renewed family of God in the, in the man Abraham, in the, in the family of Abraham, okay? So new life is going to be promised. A new creation will be promised. It's already promised in Genesis 3, but it's going to begin to start taking shape in the call of Abraham, okay? So that's that, remember, the universal in scope and then zeroing in on the particular family. That's what's going on. But it's through the view of life-transmitting genealogies because God is the author of life. So God creates all life with, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, the, the heavens and the earth and, and Adam and creation, it falls. But now through life, life generations, all right, uh, life-transmitting generations, this is going to become restored in a new creation beginning with the call of Abraham. So I hope that makes sense because this is the overarching theme. Really, it sets the whole, it sets the whole tone for all of Scripture. All right, creation and then exile from sin. And then there's going to become the promise of new creation in Jesus Christ, the new Adam. But it begins with Abraham and Abraham's family. All right, so this is the way to see the structure of Genesis. And it tees it up very, very nicely for all of Scripture as well. All right, so that's enough for organization and structure. Now we want to begin to talk about the question. It's a big question. Is Genesis historical? All these events and Adam and Eve and Abraham and his family and Noah and the flood, are they historical? How are we to understand this? And that's what we're going to look at in the next section here in your notes. Hi, I'm Dr. Nick. Thank you so much for watching this clip. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you want to access the entire lesson and the entire course, come visit us over at scriptureandtradition.com and join our community of students. You'll be able to access all of my courses in the audio library. Plus, you'll be able to access my live courses whenever I teach a new topic on scripture or the Catholic faith. God bless you.